and, uh, and uh, the, the, the wedding there, the Brown's wedding. I haven't inspected the Barnes wedding either and how much money you're spending on your wedding, but I do know the average cost of a wedding in 2023. Do you know how much it was? 24,000, no, you can put it up there. Thank you, thank you very much. It's 24,700 quid. That was the average price of a wedding um, in the UK in 2023. Now, that is a lot of money to spend, and I can only imagine how it would feel if having forked out all that money, your guests blew you out. Well, when you plan a wedding, you don't just want your guests to come and grin and bear it out of a sort of sense of duty. You want them to have an amazing time and to enjoy every detail of all that you've lavished on them and to talk about it for a long time afterwards. You know, in the minds of many people, God is um, dry, distant, disapproving, and an utter killjoy. But that's a real distortion of the truth. God is, in fact, determined to bring countless people of every sort into a wedding party that he intends to throw. You know, the most um, lavish wedding I've ever been to was for the heir of a well-known, um, nas nationally well-known business family. And the food was amazing. It was just uh, constantly being brought out, coming in, coming in and out. All the guests, of, well, there must have been 150 or so at least, were all put up in the Marriott for the whole weekend with everything paid for. Uh, what struck me most about that wedding, actually, apart from all that lavish spending, which I can tell you that cost more than £24,000, <laughs> and that was a good while ago, what struck me most was just all a loving family, the host family were to one another. It was extraordinary and wonderful. Well, the wedding banquet that God has prepared, of course, is infinitely more lavish and more loving um, even than that. Now, as I look back on that wonderful wedding weekend, I don't know if I'd been invited to that wedding if I couldn't play the oboe at the wedding service. It's amazing how that gets you invited to weddings sometimes, or at least it did in the old days of my life. But the, when God prepares a banquet, this wedding banquet, there's no qualification to come. You don't have to be doing something in the wedding to be invited. The invitation is offered to everyone, as we're going to see. So God is not a distant, dry killjoy. He's longing, in fact, to welcome us, to lavish good thing, things on us, and give us an amazing, well, I say an amazing time, but that's not true, is it? He wants to give us an amazing eternity. And that is his heart. Well, we're back in Matthew's Gospel in our journey towards Easter. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey. He comes to, uh, in gentleness to save his people, but the leaders don't want him, and they confront him, demanding to know by what authority he dares act as he does. By what authority do you do these things, they say to him. But rather than be on the defensive back foot, Jesus actually comes onto the front foot, and he won't back down, and he tells them three parables that is, three picture stories that lay bare the Jewish leader's true agenda and also predict their fate. Well, we considered the first and second of those three parables um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, remember, first, the leaders uh, were like the sun 
in the story who said that he would go and work in his father's vineyard, but then he refused to go. Because these leaders, they said all the right religious words, and yet they refused to turn from their sin. Whereas, by contrast, the despised tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners, so-called, having refused God to start with, are now saying yes and are entering God's kingdom in place of the leaders. So that was the first of the three parables. And then in the second of the three parables, Jesus compares the leaders to um, vineyard tenants who don't want to be tenants, they want to be owners of the vineyard. And so they kill, if you remember, they kill the owner's son. But God is going to raise that son from the dead as their judge. Do you remember in the story, they're going to toss Jesus aside, like builders tossing a broken breeze block into a skip. He's rubbish. But the Lord God will pick this stone out of the skip from the dead and raise him to be the the most important stone of a new glorious structure. It's all pointing to the movement of God's kingdom beyond the bounds of Old Testament Israel to this international body of Christ with him, Jesus, at its centre. Well, today we're thinking about the third of these confrontational stories, these confrontational parables. And in some ways, this is actually the most directly relevant to us those of us who are part of Jesus' worldwide church, we come into view here, and we are about to feel challenged in the same way that the Jerusalem leaders were challenged. So, because uh, we discover that, the, that, that the challenge, Jesus' confrontation against them actually has an edge against us as well. So it's a wedding scenario. It's a royal wedding, in fact, um, I love that picture, Bruegel and the, and the banquet. That's what that's about to take. That's on my wall. That's the picture there. It's on, I just took that on my wall. I've got that in my study. I love it. You can hear the picture and you can hear the chatting. Smell of it. It's a wonderful picture of a wedding feast. But that's the context. This great wedding banquet. And, um, and uh, the, the, um, it's, it's the, but it's, it's for, of course, God was representing the, the one who's throwing the banquet. The banquet is for his son. It's his son's wedding. Um, uh, but he meets all this resistance um, as he goes forward planning this wedding feast. That's the basic outline of the story. But the story moves forward in three phases. Let's take them one after another. Three phases. The first phase is that the people originally invited refuse to come. The people first invited refuse to come. So verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of, he of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, God sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, in that culture, it seems like the, the, uh, the initial invitation is offered and accepted, um, but those who have been invited need to wait and be alerted when the feast and the wedding is ready to happen, the celebrations are ready to begin. Now, I don't know if you notice it, I certainly hear an echo here, because... Um, remember the story about the son who said he would go out to work in the vineyard but then never went. It's just like that. It's the same thing. These people had obviously given the impression that they were going to come to the party when the announcement was made, but in the event, they were like, no, I'm not coming. Now imagine if you'd issued a save the date for a big party. You sent it out and everyone on your list 
They all get back to you going, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, yeah, great, it's all, all, all in the diary. And then based on all those yeses, you go out and spend all the money on the food and you, you, um, everything, you, you plan the party, and then you send out the full invitation with all the details, and at that point, they all respond with their lame apologies. Would you persist? I don't know if I would. I love that. Well, it's actually very sad. This is the woman devastated after no one shows up to her friend's giving. That is a pretty gutting thing, isn't it? You hold your friend's giving and no one comes. Anyway, I found that on the internet and it appealed to my morbid sense of humor. Poor girl. But it would be absolutely gutting. I would be so, I would be combination, I'd be either so humiliated um, that I wouldn't want to kind of risk more rejection or I'd be so hacked off that I just wouldn't want to be bothered with them. It would be very, very frustrating indeed. But this king doesn't behave like that. He doesn't just sort of curl up with annoyance. He actually is determined to fill up his son's wedding feast, and he's very patient. So he sends out more servants, this time with fuller details of the banquet. He says to them, look, the fattened, the oxen, the fattened calf, they've all been slaughtered. It's all ready. It's roasting on the spit. Come on. But this time, the response is even worse. It's not just a, no, I'm not coming. It's a, well, verse 5 and 6 tells us. It says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. I hear more echoes. It's just like what happened when the owner of the vineyard sent his servants and then his son to collect the harvest. They were shrugged off, they were abused, and they were killed. See, it's not hard in the context to see... Uh, what this first phase of the story is all about. It's about the leaders of God's Old Testament people, Israel. They were the ones who were originally invited to share God's blessing, and they accepted. Yeah, you'll come. But now that Jesus has come to announce that the kingdom of heaven is near, they don't want anything to do with it. Why not? Well, from the other two parables, we've discovered the reason that they will not respond to the invitation to the wedding. Basically, they'll do anything to keep their power, and they'll do nothing to risk losing it. So that means they are never going to humble themselves before Jesus, before Jesus' teaching, and they are never going to repent. And the consequences are catastrophic for them. Just look. Look, because in verse 7, you see, in trying to keep their power, they're actually going to lose it. In trying to hold their city, they're going to lose it. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, um, that's usually been interpreted, and I probably agree that that is fulfilled. Jesus' prophecy there is fulfilled in AD 70 when the Roman armies did encamp around Jerusalem and did indeed destroy the city. But, and, and you might think, oh, hang on, isn't this a bit harsh, this king, you know, sends out his, sends out his military to, to these rebels. Just don't forget this. If you think that's a bit harsh, don't forget this. This is a royal wedding. This is the king who is, is asking people to come. It's a royal wedding they've snubbed. And of course, in reality, it's not in the story. It's a king, a human king that they've refused. But what it symbolizes is a refusal of God. It's God that they're attacking. So in the first phase of the parable, we see that those who were originally invited refused to come. 
So with the ox and the, the oxen and the cattle roasting and the banqueting hall empty but tables laid, we come to the second phase of the story. So here's the second phase. Second, the invitation is extended unconditionally to all. So this is verses 9 and 10. The king instructs his servant, he says, go out into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets, gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Anyone! It's a universal invitation. It's totally indiscriminate. Do you see that? The good and the bad. This is the wedding hall. Let it be filled. And they all pile in. Now, who are these people? Well, they're the tax collectors and the prostitutes who Jesus mentioned earlier on, the ones who were um, the, who the, the, the leaders of Jerusalem despised. Um, it also includes the non-Jewish people, the people beyond the bounds of Old Testament Israel, um, who are not among those originally invited. It's, in other words, it's, it's the vast international gathering, church, that has gathered around Jesus Christ. It's made up of Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female, young and old, bad and good, all mixed up together in this great gathering around, the people, around Jesus, the Son of God. See, God has sent his invitation to his wedding into the whole world. And the result of that is that 2,000 years later, 2,000 miles away, here we are gathered here, really talking about the wedding, enjoying, in some sense, a foretaste of the wedding as we meet together. It's like we are the guests who are gathering excitedly in the banqueting hall, waiting for the sun to be revealed in all his glory. So maybe you might be someone who think, you wonders, you think, could God really want me? You think, well, why would he want me? Um, What's so special about me? Well, I suppose the answer to the question in one sense is nothing, because our Creator has invited us all. But in another sense, the answer is what's special about you? Everything. Because that all, that anyone, really does include you as well. He wants you. He wants me at the celebration. Not the person sitting next to you, but you. He wants you at his wedding. Very, very much indeed. You're invited, and I hope that encourages you, particularly if you're relatively new to God, to Jesus, to the Bible, to church. Maybe it's played very little part in your life up till this point. Um, but you are no less invited than the longest-serving member of the church. You're no less invited than them. It's wonderful, deeply encouraging. So, those originally invited reject the invitation. That was phase one. Phase two, the invitation gets extended to unconditionally and indiscriminately to everybody. But then, the third phase of the story takes an unexpected turn because we're going to discover that not everybody who appears to have accepted the invitation has really followed through with its implications. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Now, if you get a wedding invitation, 
The year Katie and I got married, I think we went to 13 weddings that year. Um, it's just the, 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 phase of, the phase of life that we were going through. We don't get so many now. Um, but I've noticed over the years, they get thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. But now, they just come online. But you open up the website, and that gets larger and larger. Because there are so many details at a wedding. And you've got to think about them all. See, when a wedding invitation arrives, a whole sequence of activity is kicked into motion. You first check the diary, and then you respond, and then you consider the travel and the accommodation. Um, then you browse the gift list. You consult the dedicated wedding website. You note the color scheme carefully. Work out what you're going to wear. Now imagine receiving the invitation, but you didn't do any of the vital follow-up. Oh, you, you, there's no RS, you don't reply, you know, there's, there's no gift, and on the day, you just rock up there, you arrive with your trainers and your tatty t-shirt, and, well, of course, it's an insult, really. It's an insult, a total failure to recognize the huge privilege of that invitation. Somebody wants you at their wedding, and you... Didn't really, you didn't really grasp what an extraordinary privilege that is. And that's what happens here. The man accepts the invitation in that he turns up. He does, he does turn up. All the others were properly dressed around him. But this lack of wedding clothes reveals a total failure to recognize the huge privilege of that invitation. And the insult does not escape the notice of the king. Now, we've got to take, that, take this very seriously because, remember, we are among those guests in the banqueting hall. The king is observing us. And there is a possibility that we might not be wearing the clothes that we should be. That's the sobering reality of this parable. We may not be wearing the clothes we should be, even though we belong to the church. may have done for years. See, Jesus' story ends in the most sobering way with the man thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are Jesus' words, not the words of me, a crazed preacher. So we need to wake up to these everlasting consequences. Jesus is warning us that it is possible to deceive ourselves and others as well that we've responded properly to the invitation when we've done nothing of the sort. So that means it is absolutely vital as we look at this parable that we that we answer the question as to what these wedding clothes stand for, to make sure that we've got them, is vital. And I don't think we've got to go very far, really, to find the answer to that question. Because in the last few stories, we've already met with an attitude to God that ends up excluding people from his presence. What is that attitude to God that ends up excluding people from his presence? Well, we've seen it in the, in the leaders of Jerusalem. What is that attitude? It is the refusal to repent. The refusal to repent leads to being, ex to being shut out of God's kingdom. You see, th this is the leaders of Israel. When confronted with Jesus in his, and his authority, um, for all the yes that they've said and all their religious worship over all those years, when it boils down to it, their wills, their hearts, their minds, their lives will not give way to Jesus, his authority, his teaching. They want to decide what they will decide. They want to live what they will live, and they will not change. And their refusal to repent is what leads them to being excluded from God's kingdom. And exactly the same pattern that dogged these people 
repeats in the church. That's the sobering thing about this parable. Exactly the same pattern repeats within the church itself. See, those teachers of the law, they rested complacently on the invitation they'd received. They thought, oh, look, we've been invited. That's great, we're all right. And the same can happen. They didn't follow through, you see, with deep repentance. And Jesus is saying it is the same with the New Testament church. That's us. Among the great crowd of those gathered around Jesus in his church, gathered around his message, listening today, there are plenty who have never grasped, let alone really accepted the invitation with all its implications. Our hearts, our wills, our minds, our lives are still very much our own. They are not yielded up to his authority, his teaching, his purposes. Is that me? Is that you? you know, one of the difficulties of preaching on a passage like this, sharing a passage like this, is that, and by definition, it's very, very difficult. In fact, I've come to the conclusion over the years, it's impossible um, for this reason. It's humanly speaking, it's impossible. Because people who have never bowed the knee to Jesus are usually unaware of it. That's that. I'll say that again. People who have not bowed the knee to Jesus usually don't know that that's the case. And at the same time, some people who really have bowed the knee to Jesus have a very sensitive conscience and will convince themselves that they have not bowed the knee to Jesus. It's very deceptive. Our hearts are incredibly deceptive and difficult to deal with. That's just my heart. But all of us actually are like that. Slippery as eels. So, what do we do about that? Well, I've think the way, the only way we can, we can approach this is trusting the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. See, really, only the Spirit of God can awaken the complacent, and He does, turns to do, often will do it through a passage like this, wake people up, gosh, <gasps> something needs to give here. And only the Spirit of God can seek out and speak to hearts and reassure them when that's what they need. We have to trust the Spirit of God. Preaching, reading the Word of God is, we will, without the Spirit of God teaching it to us and applying it to our hearts, then we're not even off the starting blocks. Humanly, it's impossible. But the Spirit of God, Jesus, who gives the Spirit, is the shepherd and he knows every single one of us. So, I'm going to remind you of the three phases of the story. Phase one, those originally invited refuse to come. Phase two, the invitation is extended unconditionally to all. Phase three, not all who appear to have accepted the invitation have followed through its implications. Now, as I bring this to a close, I want us to focus on the undoubted main character of this story. And that is the king. He's the main character. If you read the story again, if you want to read it later, you'll see it again and again and again. He's the actor. He's the one doing the stuff that's being done. The king. I wonder what you make of the king here. He seems so extreme. On the one hand, this incredible patience and generosity with people who reject him. And yet, on the other, a severity that seems disproportionate. After all, just on a purely human level, even on a royal level, it would, 
it would seem wrong to offer an invitation on pain of destruction or exclusion if you fail to respond to it properly. Like that, would, you, would think, you would think humanly, that's not, that's, not, that's not on. But the point is we're not talking on a human level merely, are we? We're not. We're talking about the one true and living God, the creator and the source of life, of light, of truth, of love. So to refuse him, it isn't just rude. You get the point? Because of who he is, if you refuse him, it isn't just rude. It is a... Um, it is to, it's not just a social faux pas, it is by very definition um, to refuse light, love, truth, and embrace darkness, death, and evil. And remember, of course, too, if you think that he's the, the, the king is being extreme, just remember how much knowledge everybody in the story has. Those originally invited, they knew of the invitation, the bloke who had come into the wedding banquet um, off the street, he knew, and yet their knowledge only serves to increase their sin. So I think let's capture this in Paul's words, St. Paul's words, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And we need to do it conscious of the work of the Spirit in our lives if we invite him to do that work. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith to me as well. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And I pray that as we do that, God by his spirit will gently and clearly and precisely challenge and reassure us as we need. And that his spirit will assuredly bend our wills and our minds and our lives towards him. It's a challenging passage, isn't it? I find this very challenging, this passage. Always have. But the reason Jesus challenges us with passages like this one is precisely because he does not want us to make the mistake that those people made in the story. See, God's overwhelming desire is to welcome you and me into this wedding banquet, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done. I love the line in wedding invitations. It, this comes from God as well. So-and-so requests the pleasure of your company. It's a lovely phrase. Well, that's what God says to you. The living God says, I request the pleasure of your company. You come. Come on. Let's pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, these are challenging words, but as Jesus is teaching, we pray that you would search us by the Holy Spirit, we use the words of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my thoughts. See if there be offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do this, Holy Spirit. Save us from the deceptiveness of our own hearts. Show us the truth. And set us free to enjoy this wedding banquet for sure forever. Through Christ, for the glory of the Father. Amen.